This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have an episode of This Is War, which was a cooperative effort between the CBS, Mutual, NBC, and NBC Blue Networks to inform the American public about the war. This episode, Your Navy, first aired on February 28, 1942, and was hosted by Frederick March and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. This is war. The four major networks present the third in their series of programs for wartime America. Tonight, Your Navy, by Maxwell Anderson with music by Kurt Weill. The principals, Frederick March and Lieutenant Douglas Fairbanks, Jr., United States Navy. You boys out there, you boys on blue water... Freedmen, machinists, engineers, aviators, officers of the staff and of the line. Enemy sub off the port bow, sir. Submerging. Hard left. Come to course 155. Hard left, sir. Coming to course 155. Ahead, full all engines. Both engines answer ahead full, sir. Are depth charges and Y guns ready? Depth charges and Y guns ready, sir. Depth setting 100 feet. Stand by. Already. Standing by, sir. We're a hundred yards off, sir. Drop pattern. Four x-ray. Drop one. Drop two. Drop three. Drop four. Watch for debris and oil. Aye, sir. A lot of oil is burned, sir. Spreading. Very well. Come to your course. One eight zero. New course. One eight zero, sir. You boys of the Navy and Marine Corps and the Merchant Service, afloat out there on blue water, a long way from home, we'd like you to hear this if you have a little free time to listen. You civilians at home who've been wondering where our Navy is and what it's doing, we'd like you to listen, too. home are beginning to realize now that the struggle for freedom is linked up closely to the freedom of the seas. It used to be that 
When a conqueror set out to make slaves of his neighbors, he was content with one continent. And then the men who couldn't stand slavery would escape him and start off across the ocean to set up a center of freedom beyond his reach. So long as the seas were free and there was free land somewhere, they could do that. But this is a new kind of war. The conquerors are trying to take in all the continents and all the seas. They're trying, as it's never been tried before, to conquer the whole earth and all its waterways. If they succeed, then for the first time, it won't be possible to run away. All men will be slaves, and there'll be no centers of freedom. Nowhere to run, no ocean to escape across. One big slavery from pole to pole, from dateline around a dateline. A slavery protected by a monopoly in arms and airplanes. No hope of secession or rebellion. But there are still centers of freedom. Some of the seas are still free. They're risky to travel and getting more so, but it can be done. That's it. That's how it sounds. The big guns of the fleet speaking in the name of freedom-loving nations. As of tonight, they hold the straits and sea lanes, making impossible the conquest of the earth by Hitler and his Japanese associates. And that's why we look towards our Navy nowadays. And we hope for so much from it. And we listen for news of it. In a hush of hell breath and thumping hearts. If the men of the fleet weren't always out there in their battle wagons, cutting through tropic seas and arctic ice, fighting storm and enemy and hidden danger, moving with the tides of freedom to the outposts of man's hope, we'd have this war on our front steps tomorrow. But they... They sweep from the African Cape to the gateway of the Indian Ocean. Through the Antipodes, the Persian Gulf, the North Atlantic, the White Sea. Fighting men, wearing American uniforms, standing on American decks, beside American guns. Fighting the desperate battle which we must win. is America beyond the borders of America. Listen. The Maryland, the Pennsylvania, the Texas, the California, the Colorado, the Mississippi, the North Carolina, the Washington, the West Virginia, the Nevada, the Helena, the Atlanta, the Nashville, the Vincennes, the Wichita, the Savannah, the John Paul Jones, the Farragut, the Dewey, the Sims. These names stand for America on the move, keeping freedom and its destiny on the earth. We used to take them for granted, but not now. Now we listen eagerly to what we can learn firsthand of the Navy and how it works. Tell us, Lieutenant, I understand you've just been ordered ashore from convoy escort action, North Atlantic patrol duty for this occasion. Tell 130 million ship owners throughout the land... How it goes with their men and their ships. Answer a big question for us, Lieutenant. What's it like in the Navy? In the Navy? Yeah. 
Well, of course, the Navy gives you quite a variety. Fair weather and foul and eyes peering through the mist and sextants and calculations and the hundred and one sounds that mean freedom of the seas. That's the blast of the bosun's pipe piping down all hands to chow. Those are the turbines turning over as the cruiser slips from the harbor under sealed orders in the dead of night. Those are the diesel engines powering our new trim submarines with names like Sculpin, Skipjack, Stingray, Shark. Now you'll hear the big electric motors humming, pushing the sub along at ten knots underwater. Then there are the torpedoes leaving their tubes and heading home against the enemy. Now the sound detectors deep down beneath the waterline, picking up squeals and howls and all suspicious hums. And all the offhand sounds that have to do with fighting. This is the repair job in dry dock with the chipping hammers going and the cranes and derricks and the riveting machines. Then when you're at sea, the wind and the rigging. A fairly moderate wind on a fairly moderate sea. And of course the Navy doesn't run itself. Behind the ships and guns and the planning and detail, the office of the Secretary of the Navy. The shore establishments, the wireless towers, the check on movements, the shipyards, the longshoremen... The planning and the details. The Navy takes a lot of planning. It takes a lot of work. It takes planning and work on shore. It takes planning and work and hard fighting at sea. At this moment, there are ships loading at night by docks in every port busy with men and machines. Some of these sounds come from piers along the Jersey side of the Hudson where the ice has come down from upstate. Some from the warm gulf waters of Tampa, Florida. Or the landlocked harbor of San Francisco. Some from a windswept lake boat loading it in Duluth. Oh, from any of a hundred American waterways. Lake, gulf, river, harbor, island. Corn from Nebraska headed for Liverpool. Machine guns from Birmingham headed for Chongqing. Tanks from Detroit headed for Africa. Wings from Baltimore going to Batavia. Woolens and canned milk and gasoline and anti-aircraft. And the latest magazines going to Iceland. Steel and coffee and mail and fragmentation bombs going to Melbourne via Bermuda and Cape Town. And And other points unspecified. It looks romantic and it looks grim. And I suppose it's a little of both. The ships slipping away in the dark from this port and that harbor. And sailing around the point and across the bay and out to sea. and, And meeting in a secret rendezvous. Waiting there until all the ships have gathered. Gathered with their crews from a dozen different lands across a dozen seas. And finally the skipper's meeting in the Commodore's office just before they put out for the long, hard voyage. Getting last-minute instructions. And naturally, I don't have to stress the importance of the cargoes you're carrying. They're needed and they're badly needed. And they're the stuff that's going to help win this war. And it's up to us to see that they get where they're going. Now, any further questions? Don't have no questions, sir. No questions for me, Senor Commodore. Uh, oh, you, uh, Captain McKenzie. Aye, sir. I believe you have the slower ship. Oh, she's not a bad one, sir. The speed of the entire convoy will be regulated by what you can make. 
How fast do you think you can push it? Oh, with the wind behind it, we can count on 12 knots, I guess, sir. <laughs> uh, but we are headwind, I'm afraid, maybe no more than 10 or 9. No more than 6. Of course, if my chief engineer wouldn't argue with me all the time, maybe we could push her faster. <laughs> well, Captain, you realize that we'll get there just as soon as your ship does, and no sooner. Oh, I'll do the best I can, sir. I know you will. Now, gentlemen, Captain Lovejoy here, who is commanding the convoy escort, will say a few words. Well, I just want to say that we'll give you the best possible protection at all times. And for your part, you can cooperate by keeping your formation and following out all instructions to the letter. Just remember to keep on the alert, because that's going to make it easier for all of us. We've got the guns and the men, and you've got the payload. So just do your part, and we'll do ours. Are there any questions you want to ask, Captain Lovejoy? Yes. What happens, Captain, if the ship has to drop out for repairs? Do we still get protection? I'm sorry, but that can't be done. If you break down, you're on your own. The safety of the majority is the hard and fast rule of the convoy. Any other questions, gentlemen? No, All right, then, gentlemen. Good luck. Goodbye. May we all meet again. Just a detail. Just a detail of what goes on every day of the week in many places on many seas. A detail of the vast and bloody canvas of this bitter struggle. Each successful convoy is an item in the reckoning. An item in the final tipping of the scale. And all that even before the gun reaches the man who does the fighting. Yep. Well, I can see that we uh, have to look a long, long way ahead. Yes, sir. That's the size of it. How, uh... How long would you say, Lieutenant? Well, if it lasts longer than our lives, our children will have to fight it. We can't give up in either hemisphere. We've seen what the Japs and the Germans do to conquered nations. You know, some people refuse to believe that this country could lose the war. Well, we could lose if our allies lose. We could lose if Great Britain and Russia and China went down. Mm-hmm. Our fleet would have a hard time keeping the oceans open if the British went on the same job in the Atlantic and the Pacific and Indian Oceans and in the Mediterranean. And if the Russians went in command of certain sea approaches... Why, if our allies fell, we'd be the last center of freedom in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, how about those seamen out there in the ships? Are they aware of these things as they go about their work? I mean, do they, do they know that they're one of the last bulwarks between civilization and darkness? Or are they casual about the matter? Oh, you, you can't be casual out there, I assure you of that. Oh, I suppose not. <laughs> the first time you hear the call of battle stations, something, something happens inside of you that you... Never feel anywhere else on sea or land. It's it's like ice and fire together in your veins. Your mm-hmm. your eyes see farther and your ears hear better and you're ready for anything. Death or a fight or cold water. How does it feel to uh, stand watch on the deck of an escort vessel? Just waiting for this sort of thing. Oh, it can be different at different times. I can remember days when the sea was calm and the whole convoy rode along like a string of ducks under a blue sky. That's so. Yeah. And I can remember nights and days on end that were a nightmare of storm and smashed gear and torpedoed ships. Some of these things aren't pleasant to remember. I can imagine. You just did the best you could and hoped you'd be one of the lucky ones to come through. It's a tough job, but nobody's kicking about it. It's tough, and the men know it's tough. By the way, Lieutenant, uh... How do the sailors on the warships feel about the men of the merchant ships? Oh, great respect. Those birds really have their courage with them. Most of the skippers have had ships shot from out from under them more than once, but they never quit. 
If they lose one ship, they apply for another and complain if they don't get it right away. One howling black night, we had dropped astern to round up a freighter that was lagging behind. The old Norwegian who commanded her had lost his code book overboard, so he ran close enough to hail them. Ahoy there! If you don't close up, we'll have to leave you astern. I don't know. I never heard. But mind you, these are not exactly usual happenings. I've, I've known many nights when we were running along on a sea so smooth you could almost hear the porpoises breathing as they rose alongside. Well, there'd be no lights, of course, and, and the officers would stand using their high-powered night glasses in the effort to see all the ships in the convoy and be sure they were in position. And they'd be talking quietly about something far off from the war. I missed that game. I was out west. Speck was the best army end I ever saw. Uh-huh. Never had much of a chance in any game he played in. Steel 157. Coming to 157, sir. He only played three years. Got a little behind in math and had to bone hard to get a commission. Look out there. Aye, aye, sir. Can you see the Paul Jones? No, sir. I haven't seen him for ten minutes. Very well. Well, then he had to bone up to pass his mid-years. He's with the tank corps now. Talker, ask fire control if they've seen the Paul Jones. I said. Fire control, aye, aye. Can you see the Paul Jones? I think she's ahead the Oriental, sir. Just a little abaft that big tanker. What year was that last big game of his? Mm, 34. Yeah, it was a swell team. Last good line they had. Last of a lot of good things. You remember the Harvard game when Barry... message from squadron commander, sir. Three subs reported well ahead and on the bow of convoy. We're picking up depth charges on the sound detector. Forward, look out there. Bridge, aye, aye. Did you see gunfire? Yes, sir. Dead ahead. Very faint. Sound general quarters. Aye, aye, sir. Buchler! All hands of general quarters, take battle station! Sometimes we stood waiting on our stations for hours and nothing happened. Sometimes too much happened. The sinking of a ship is something you're not likely to forget, try as you like. That's the kind of thing men face when they take places in our merchant marine. And they do face it. Mm. And the submarines, Lieutenant, don't we sometimes make it pretty tough for them? A good number of them are on the bottom, I can tell you that. (laughs) I got a story of a submarine kill straight from a friend of mine, a Coast Guardsman. Want to hear it? Sure. Well, I'll I'll tell it to you anyway. (laughs) 
Seems he was a lookout on a patrol ship this winter coming down the coast from Labrador. He'd just come off duty one night, and uh, we were having some beer together in a little restaurant. In other words, nothing ever happened to us for six months, and then this happened. You won't believe it, and I couldn't blame you. Hurry up with that beer, will you, Sadie? I didn't believe it when I when it was there right in front of my eyes. You see, uh, we had a jinx ship. Always getting into trouble, huh? No, never getting near it. Oh. Always missed everything that happened. Oh, I see. And then one month, I was standing watch just about dawn, smooth sea, foggy weather, couldn't see more than ten feet in any direction, yeah. and all of a sudden... A wind hit the fog and lifted it like a bed quilt. And there was a whole flock of three submarines, not more than a hundred yards ahead. Three of them just lying to there, charging the batteries. Did they get you? Almost. I almost fell through the deck when I seen them. What'd you do? As soon as I could uh, make my mouth work, I yelled, subs. And then things happened fast. We picked up speed and began to fire. Hit the first sub four or five times and sank it. The others started to crash dive, but we got one with a hit on the conning tower before it could get underwater, and then we dropped charges on the last one. Did you sink it? Yep. Three subs in one morning, and we were the jinx ship nothing ever happened to. <laughs> Only it happened. It happened to me. Yeah. Well, that, uh... That was what Kipling would call good hunting. <laughs> good hunting, all right, only he should never have told you that story. Why? Well, the less talk, the less chance of the enemy finding out something it's anxious to know. Oh, I get it, yeah. But there is one thing I'd, uh, I'd like to ask you, Lieutenant, if I may. Go ahead. Well, the people of the United States aren't used to war. I mean, certainly they're not used to the long, hard pull of a war that begins badly and can be won only by holding on. And when they hear of Axis victories in the East, they hear of the back-and-forth struggle in Libya, hear of more sinkings in the Atlantic, and the German ships escaping to raid our shipping. Some of them begin to wonder why we can't make a stand somewhere, why we can't concentrate forces and smash through on one ocean at least. Now, what, what answer can we give to that? Well, the answer is that we have to hold on in every ocean. And so far, we have no margin of ships or men or planes to waste. Oh, our Navy and the British Navy are spread out thin these days over the high seas, attacking, defending, raiding, escorting, holding on stubbornly and desperately till the day comes when they can deal decisive blows. I see. From now on, our planes from... Uh, even now, right this minute, our planes and working from aircraft carriers are hitting the Japs hard in the South Pacific. Mm -hmm. The sky as well as the sea must be captured and held and made free. Well, I suppose there, if there aren't enough planes or ships, then... Someone must decide where we can best use the ones we have. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> must be a difficult decision sometimes. Oh, it's a series of difficult decisions. It means choosing to withdraw in one place so that you won't lose in another. Mm -hmm. It means letting men fight on unaided sometimes because you can't afford to send help. Because another position must be held and you'd have to weaken it if that help was sent. Oh, you should hear the messages that come from all over the world. Yeah. Reporting progress. Hoping for reinforcements. Noting the arrival or loss of supplies. Memorial Nemo Tundra. Synchronized West Haven. Remark Sequoia Octagonal. 27th February, off Liberia. Line of Tripolitan reports shelled by small commerce raider. Escaped. 26th February, Galapagos Islands. Wreckage of Japanese bomber washed ashore on West Island. 27th, Iceland. Three subs reported 10 miles east of convoy 209. 
Routing convoy plan 1-4. Destroyers alert. 28, Key West. Enemy subs reported by fishermen passing Havana, West. Destroyer 550, notified. 28, Pacific. Raid in Jaluit successful. Four vessels, five large bombers destroyed. Harbor installations burned. Lost three planes, three men. 28, off east coast. Sighted sub, sank same. Well, that's the way it is now. The men who fight on our side are in some places outnumbered and lacking ships. <laughs> well, tell me, Lieutenant, is it your intention to make things look grim for its effect on morale, or is that just the way it works out? Well, anybody who still thinks it's going to be a pushover should just do a little of the pushing and see for himself. Mm-hmm. No, it's going to be a hard, long battle, and there's no fooling about that. Well, we know the Navy can take it and dish it out. But how does the... Uh... Navy feel about how the home front is taking it. Well, men on ships are too busy to worry about that. They're doing their job, and they're assuming everyone else is doing his. After a man's lived on a destroyer or a battle wagon or an aircraft carrier for a while, he can fight a battle along with the day's work. And traditions are strong in the Navy. Every sailor knows about John Paul Jones, and those who know their history remember what Captain Pearson testified at his court-martial for losing the Serapis to John Paul Jones in the Revolution. Long before the close of the action, gentlemen, it became clearly evident that the American ship was dominated by a command will of the most unalterable resolution. And there could be no doubt that the intention of a commander was, if he could not conquer, to sink alongside. And this desperate resolve of the American captain was fully shared and fiercely seconded by every one of his ship's company. And that was the Navy of long, long ago. And then on the Hartford, what said the great Farragut? When death for his fleet swam he'd neath the flow, why damn the torpedoes? He ordered full speed ahead. And that was the Navy of long, long ago. That was the Navy of long ago, and it's also the Navy of today. Such slogans and the actions they represent have become a tradition as deeply ingrained as the love for ship and service. In the great battle for the earth, which is now in the making, the greatest battle of all time for the greatest stakes, for the earth and all that's in it, including our lives, the Navy is not going to give less than everything it has. I've watched our men night after night, day after day, going about their work. To them, it's mostly just work and not over-pleasant. They look forward to land as a child looks forward to holidays. In war, the sea is not exactly romantic to them. They've learned to live with it, somewhat as a tiger tamer lives with his tigers, but they don't trust it. Every time they make port, they consider it a battle won. But go about their business and work as callously as they may, they have a sense of importance to the world that gives a new sharpness to the eye, a new conviction to the spirit. They know that they are the men in the house of civilization. They defend that house. I hope you heard that, you boys out there. You boys on blue water. 
We know that we can depend on you. And we want you to know that you can depend on us. We had a lot of illusions about this war, but we're losing them fast. We thought we couldn't be attacked. We know now that if we once lost control of the seas, we couldn't hope to escape invasion. We thought we could win by merely helping our allies. We know now that we're at the middle of the quarrel, that we're enemy number one of the Axis and must fight it out with them. That we must outproduce and outthink and outguess and outshoot them on every sea. We know that our existence as a nation and as citizens depends on our doing our jobs at home as relentlessly, as tirelessly, as efficiently, as courageously as you do yours at sea. We know that we must face the production struggle with the same resolution which you show at your battle stations when the enemy line looms up over the horizon. We pledge you, men of the Navy, your nation will not let you down. That did it, sir. Any oil yet? Make action report. Looks like we got her. Well, Captain, that makes you boat number three. Come back to base course. Steer 180. Coming back to 180, sir. have been listening to Your Navy. Tonight, the principal players were Frederick March and Lieutenant Douglas Fairbanks, Jr., United States Navy. The original musical score was composed by Kurt Weil and conducted by Don Voorhees. The program was written by Maxwell Anderson and directed by Norman Corwin. Next week, the four major networks again unite the resources of American radio for another war program, Your Army, written by Stephen Vincent Benet and starring Tyrone Power. This is war.